Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. There's a guy named H.W. Uh, Crocker who wrote A Short History of the Church. It's a very like, entertaining and informative book. It's an easy read. But in this, he paints uh, what you'd really call a big, uh, like, you know, these kaleidoscopes, you know, where you look in there and there's all this stuff comes around and forms patterns. Well, he paints that kind of a picture of the ever-changing and constantly conflicted relationships between the church, heretics, pagans, schismatics, and civil government. He, the church had to deal with this from the beginning. This was evident even in the, apostles, in the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and the Epistles. Jesus himself is portrayed by the chief priests and elders as an enemy of the Roman Empire. He foretells persecution, and he outlines some basic rules. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added to you. Both Peter and Paul advocate civil obedience in their epistles. In regard to heresy, among others, John and Paul deplore the fact that self-serving agents in the church are trying to spread a gospel of their own making. Conflict as is, as it were, a constant for the church, an aspect of the struggle between light and darkness, truth and error, good and evil, death and life, indifference and love. Yet conflict as such is not a problem. It is a problem only when it becomes pathological, codependent, adversarial, closed to dialogue, or in any wise opposed to the pursuit of truth. Healthy conflict is often the only way to bring clarity and unity in mind and heart among people who are divided in opinion and purpose. Jesus himself said, Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household will be divided, three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father. A mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother. A mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So initially, the church suffered persecution from both Jewish leaders and Roman officials. It also experienced internal conflict between Gentile and Jewish members. And in regard to heresies, for centuries, all the way up to the Council of Chalcedon in 451, or Chalcedon in 451, it went through a series of controversies over basic beliefs about Christ, about salvation, about the sacraments, about authority, and about the nature of the church itself. Conflict, all through all those centuries, up to the 5th century. By the 5th century, this early period of development was drawing to a close. It could be likened to the 40 years that the Israelites spent wandering about in the desert while being formed into a nation, into the people of God. With Constantine's emergence as head of the western portion of the Roman Empire, this is 312, 313, under the banner of the cross, remember in Hoxinio Vinces and his sign you will conquer, the church entered on into an entirely new chapter in its existence. From being a viciously persecuted minority, 
Christians were swept into positions of civil leadership and social responsibility. This called for a second period of adjustment, no less challenging and painful than the first. In 476, the Roman Empire fell as waves of barbarians from the north swept into Europe. With the virtual collapse of civil government in the west, the church found itself as the only institution with enough authority to maintain public order and to preserve the framework and culture of Western civilization in its social institutions, its treasures of literature, art, and law. Now, the church, having survived that initial barbarian onslaught, was soon involved in a struggle to maintain her freedom in the practical management of religious affairs. With whom? Government. Employments to ecclesiastic offices, ecclesiastical offices, and the right to property. The new barbarian evasion stretched this conflict between church and state from the 6th through the 10th century. Pope St. Gregory VII, in a pitched battle with the German Emperor Henry IV, set the stage for a settlement. Elections to positions in the church were to take place under the auspices of the church, and those prelates who acted as feudal barons or vassals took an oath of allegiance to the secular power as regards their management of temporalities. This was the Concordat of Worms, which was agreed upon in 1122. So this is all conflict. This is now we're up into the 12th century. And, you know, if you take a look, just a brief look at the Eastern Empire, the church in the, in the East, it had its own set of problems. The first problem had to do with sharing the exercise of authority with civil government. And the second problem was similar to that of the West, dealing with the rise of a fiercely militant adversary, not barbarians, but the Muslim blood brotherhood, which came from, with a highly developed Arabian civilization. That's something we often forget. In the East, with its focus on spiritual rather than the temporal, heresies were hardly a problem, until the development of doctrine became an issue long after the Council of Nicaea. But the East, you know, uh, what happened in the East is that uh, they really were dealing with this, this problem with the Muslims for so many years. And uh, the attention of the church was uh, really defensive. And uh, the, what it says, it was, the Isidore of Seville, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> he writes this about the, the princes of the world. They sometimes retain within the church the height of power which they have attained, so that by this very power they may fortify ecclesiastical discipline. Now, that's the way it should have been. But as conceptualized here by St. Isidore, the earthly power doesn't define it simply enforces church discipline. So one final and abiding constant that has occasioned conflict in the church is that of schism. Remember, we have heresies and schism. A lot of people say schism, like school, but it's schism. And it's like, when you have a scissors that cuts. And uh, the most notable of all the schisms, of course, is that split between the Eastern and Western churches. The final break occurred on July 16, 1054. There had been many separations prior to that time, covering more than half of the seven centuries involved. One of the, the most, uh, what would you call it, bitter and, and sharp uh, controversies was that over the veneration of images. 
It was begun by Emperor Leo III in 726, and it lasted until 842. As a theological issue, the schism supposedly rests on the East rejection of the Filioque. Filioque is added to the Nicene Creed, asserting that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque means and the Son. However, the real problem here has to do with the radically different ways in which authority had been incorporated into culture. Now, the Middle Ages, also called the Dark Ages and the Age of Faith, have the dubious distinction of being the most maligned, romanticized, and misrepresented period in all of Western history. These were times when mere survival called for heroic deeds, and the era produced more than its share of villains and saints. It was a period of conflict and integration during which the people of Western Europe laid the foundations for Western civilization, incorporating Greek, Roman, Arab, Jewish, and indigenous elements in such a way as to make the product greater than the sum of its parts. European history is, in fact, a study in how culture takes shape. The political dimension in the formation of nation-states, the economic aspect in the growth of trade, the educational and religious elements in the founding of universities, and the spread of countless monasteries, perhaps as many as 30,000 at their peak across the entire face of Europe. The endless cycle of wars, and through it all the constant presence of the popes in temporalities, brokering alliances, mediating treaties, pushing, punishing excesses, and warding off civil interference in religious affairs. Typically, the Middle Ages are seen only as a prelude to the Renaissance, which in turn is taken merely as an introduction to the Age of Enlightenment. It is as though nothing of importance occurred before the storming of the Bastille and the invention of the steam engine. <laughs> in ignoring the early Middle Ages, we deprive ourselves of the legacy of the fathers of the Church. In skipping over the rest of the Middle Ages, in our haste to reach the Golden Age of the Renaissance, we are ignorant of the trials and tribulations that gave rise to the beginnings of an authentic Christian humanism, derailed by the Age of Reason and the Protestant Revolt. Rushing into an infatuation with the ego and the abstract, we lost appreciation for the heroic self-sacrifice that kept humanity in touch with reality, endowed with dignity, and committed to the pursuit of truth. So this brings us to where we began our series on the Second Vatican Council, the modern era. As I mentioned, the Renaissance had introduced a new world, one based not on faith but on a passionate self-confidence in man. Rising nationalism, the age of exploration, trade and colonization aroused financial interests. The upheaval brought about by the age of reason resulted in a rejection of classical philosophies, the collapse of traditional social structures and norms, unprecedented political revolt and turmoil, Rejection of every established form of authority, none more so than the church. These dramatic changes worked to the advantage of political and religious reformers, and they also sped up the development of science and technology. Whereas in previous ages, the Catholic Church had found itself in conflict with pagans, schismatics, heretics, and civil authorities, it now faced professed enemies on all sides. The Second Vatican Council unilaterally put an end to all such codependent and adversarial relationships. Very much in keeping with the radical command of Jesus, 
that his disciples were to love their enemies and do good to those who spoke ill of them. That's what Vatican II did. All that era of conflict and adversarial relationships, Vatican II said, finish. Now, what we know, and that's partly why Vatican II had that confidence, the Age of Enlightenment certainly did not live up to expectations. It had promised to bring Western civilization to a new state of perfection with unqualified happiness and human fulfillment. All of this was to happen on the strength of reason, science, and technology, not religion. Religion was regarded as a liability, as unscientific and irrational. From our vantage point in history, we can see that bigger and deadlier wars, <laughs> political and social chaos, exploitation and oppression hardly represent a step forward in the fortunes of humanity. Estimates as to the number of people who suffered violent death during the 20th century range from 100 to 140 million people. This figure is so monstrous that it defies comprehension. Worshiping at, the, worshiping at the altar of human progress, the modern version of idolatry, makes the Tower of Babel look like a speeding ticket compared to a massacre. We can certainly point to communism, Nazism, and other atheistic ideologies as the proximate cause of these atrocious crimes against humanity. However, we have to ask, where were we? More importantly, we have to ask, where are we now? Among the bishops who attended the Second Vatican Council, Pope John Paul II was among the three who survived the longest after it had closed. Another one was the bishop in Ogdensburg, New York. He, uh, he was a, a great guy. Pope John was among, also among the bishops who played a major role in drawing up the council's most significant document, the church in the modern world. So in looking for answers, where were we and where are we to be, we, we are well served by looking at what John Paul II wrote, what he thought. And as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing more important than the statement he made about the human being, the definition of the human being, how it has and will to a large extent determine the culture in which it is found. The idea of what it means to be human embodies identity and purpose. That's how we know who we are, by our sense of identity and purpose. Culture does so as well, because it authorizes human behavior. That is, how to be what I am. The complex process of elaborating a culture can be compared to a spider spinning a web. All strands are, drawn, are, are joined in the middle. The principal strands for culture are, what I said before, family, religion, education, and government with the human person at the very center. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. On a visit to the missions in Asia, I spent time at a home for persons with a wide range of disabilities, both physical and mental. The local sisters by themselves grow the food and run the facility. Most importantly, they lovingly impart to each resident the security of being a child of God. 
Most of the residents aren't baptized or even Christian, but they experience the gentle face of Christ through these sisters. May we always take the opportunities given by God to reflect the face of His Son to those who suffer around us. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. Prior to modern times, the prevailing view in Western civilization was that the human person was created by God, formed in God's image, and constituted as a moral agent with intellect and free will. As the modern age gained momentum, emphasis shifted away from the moral to the rational dimension of the human person. We even defined a human being as homo sapiens. Not that he had... uh, imagination and uh, emotions and memory and uh, self-awareness and free will. No, homo sapiens, the human thing. The Greeks thought that our, you know, that we could think. Logo, you know, this, this whole idea of logic. That was the crowning glory of the human person. Now, the way we can see this happened was Rene Descartes' famous dictum where he said, uh, see, he had a universe, he wanted to know. People doubted whether or not they could prove that they exist. You know, it's pretty much of a stretch. Nobody in Papua New Guinea wondered whether they existed or not. <laughs> but code, uh, what's his name, Descartes, Rene Descartes, he says, I doubt that I exist. Then he says, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. And uh, that was his big, that's his big uh, categorical doubt. And because this, was, this is what happened. This became the principle in which the modern idea of, the, of, of being human, what it makes to be a human, was built. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. The problem with this is it deals only with the fact that we are, not how we came to be. It doesn't say anything about that. In fact, one, a long time ago, Time Magazine <laughs> had an article on all the modern plays at that time. They were all pretty dreadful. And uh, it said... It is said that Descartes should not have said, I think, therefore I am. He should have said, I stink, therefore I am. <laughs> and, and that probably would have been a better way because it would at least take into account this fact that they're trying to gloss over the idea, where did we come from? This is what the theory of evolution does. It does the same thing. There's another modern philosopher, a guy named Immanuel Kant, and he, again, without reference to God or natural law, set forth what he regarded as the absolute moral imperative. So here we got this categorical doubt and this moral imperative. Namely, the moral imperative that one's own acts should conform to the same principles that one wishes to see binding for everyone else. This is not, not far from the truth. Because Jesus said, do unto others as you would they do unto you. But when you take these two together, these uh, they're, they're pseudo-scientific principles, they give the impression that as human beings, we are reason enough for our own existence. We don't need God. And therefore, we're qualified to determine the moral order and decide what is good or evil, true or false, right or wrong. That's the moral imperative. Now, 
if you really work at this, and I won't bother you with it, Descartes' categorical doubt can be reduced to intellectual suicide, and Kant's categorical imperative amounts to moral anarchy. Indeed, if we follow the ground rules established by Descartes and Kant, we can speak neither of objective truth nor of a pre-existent moral order, which in effect suspends the search for truth before it begins and would therefore eliminates any standard for moral behavior beyond one's own judgment. This is really what it is. So, but how, could, how is it possible that modern culture could come to be built on two gratuitous assumptions? That's what actually happened. If you take the time to trace the development of philosophy from St. Albert the Great, who was already very conversant with the natural sciences, and then you go down through Descartes, Kant, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Ayer, Russell, and Sartre, you will find that each has aspects of, if you'll pardon the expression, truth. But you will also find a trend that takes truth first from being difficult to verify, then to being unknowable, and finally to whatever we think it is creating a seeming reality as we literally, in the words of Sartre, invent ourselves. These views, in a limited way, express utilitarianism, subjectivism, existentialism, nominalism, logical positivism, and phenomenology. And this philosophical fever brought on intense and growing, quote, scientific interest in human behavior from every conceivable angle, This gave rise to disciplines such as sociology, psychology, economics, anthropology, and political science. All of these matters were addressed and popularized by authors. Well, I mentioned this in in providing background for the Second Vatican Council. I don't know if you were here, but George Berkeley was the guy who wrote on... He was an Anglican bishop. He wrote on subjectivism and skepticism. John Locke was the guy who denied metaphysics and chose utilitarianism in its place, you know, if it works, pragmatism. Voltaire, who saw both the church and state as deplorable for depriving people their freedom to make their own decisions. And Rousseau, who regarded authority as the cause of social discontent and psychological disorder. (laughs) That's what they, I mean, you know, this is really, this is the modern beginning of where we are today. Hume, David Hume, he championed relativism and saw morals as a matter of public utility. You know that Pope John Paul II and the present Pope, Benedict XVI, they're talking about subjectivism as this real problem of our age, right? secularism and subjectivism. Auguste Comte, who may be counted among the founders of secular humanism because he's the guy who takes humanity, past, present, and future, as the embodiment of God. And then we have Charles Darwin, our dear friend, the proponent of organic evolution, through natural selection and the struggle for survival. <laughs> and what he was, he was the, uh, the uh, these ideas of his took, replaced belief in God as the creator. Now we don't need a God because all of a sudden we have this uh, evolution which doesn't say where it all began, but we just disregard that. Finally, Soren Kierkegaard, he was the father of existentialism. And this system sees existence as the foundation of reality. In other words, it does away with the concept of being and the validity of universal ideas. This means that there's no such thing as cowness. There's only cows. You know, you, don't have, you can't talk about cowness. You only have cows. If you add to this list others like Marx, Engels, Jung, Adler, Freud, 
and those who wrote on sociological and biological evolution, social revolution, human autonomy, liberty, capitalism, communism, democracy, all purportedly from a scientific point of view. So where was the church while all this was going on? Well, in many ways, for want of the development of a Christian humanism that was cut short by the Age of Enlightenment and the Protestant Revolt, the church's perspective was irreconcilable with modern secular views on what makes us human. As a consequence, no dialogue could take place. On this account, church teachings were seen as antiquated, intolerant, unscientific, irrational, and opposed to human progress. Those who took up the defense of church teachings were variously regarded as reactionaries, monarchists, papists, superstitious dupes, the Antichrist, or a combination of all the above. It wasn't politically correct to be a Catholic. Well, that brings us to really where we should be discussing what do we do about it, and our time is about expired. But you know what we're going to do about it. Evangelization. Bring the gospel values into our culture. Replace all the stuff that Solzhenitsyn was talking about by positive values, not by protest, but by living our faith at a depth, in a way that is convincing to the world as it was when Christianity first came on the scene. And this is, there's no other way to do this apart from what Vatican II called for, a profound renewal, interior conversion, and a readiness to share our faith through word, deed, and example. And in so doing, we may see that our culture can once again be one that closes the gap between what we believe and what we do, that closes the gap between culture and the gospel. Thank you very much. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.